Welcome to Truly Rotten Potatoes, the podcast where we talk about all of the films that have 0% ratings on the, the website Rotten Tomatoes. That means not a single critic gave them a positive review. I'm Declan. I'm here with my co-hosts, Mitch. Hello. Morgan. Goodbye. On the phone, we've got Hayden. It's a me. And we've also got a very special guest. Now, uh, we've had one other musician on the podcast, but I think this is the first time we can officially say we've had someone with, with number one albums. Mm-hmm. This guy's got arias. Check. He's got more arias than our podcast has hosts. That's how, that's how accomplished this guy is. He's the bassiest third of a band called The Living End. Welcome, Scott Owen. Hi, thank Yay. you. I'm humbled. So nice to have you on board. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we did. I gave you two options of films you could watch. One of them was Baby Geniuses 2 Super Genius, <laughs> and the other one was the one you picked, which was an Adam Sandler Netflix movie from 2015 called The Ridiculous Six. So my first question to you, Scott, is what's your relationship like with Adam Sandler and his body of work? I love Adam Sandler. I think he's fabulous. He's made some pretty average films. He's made some really incredibly good ones, but he's also made some really average ones. He goes into like the John Travolta category for me. He can't be hated. He can't be discarded because of the bad films that he's done because the good ones are so good. So that's what I like to refer to as John Travolta syndrome. John Travolta is great and Saturday Night Fever. So it doesn't matter how many bad, what are that, whatever those big daddy or whatever they are films. <laughs> bad ones he does, he's still okay. He's still John Travolta. You've hit a nerve with us. I'm already a huge fan of of your work as a musician, but um, it's quite possible that you just went uh, much much higher up, in my opinion, because just comparing Adam Sandler to John Travolta right off the bat, we talk a lot about John Travolta on this podcast. (laughs) You really do. Uh, (laughs) There's a lot lot to be said for him. He's the best. He's incredible, yeah, but he's also so incredibly daggy as well. (laughs) The last episode we did of the show was a John Travolta starring masterclass, and I think we've done three John Travolta movies, possibly, I think that was the fourth. I think three or four, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, right. So what would be your favourite Adam Sandler movie, do you reckon, Scott? I suppose it's hard to go past Happy Gilmore. Yeah, that's the, the classic. What's the first one you saw, Scott? What's the first Adam Sandler film that you saw? It was Happy Gilmore. It was, right? Yeah. And then there was also that one about the the wedding singer. <laughs> the wedding singer is fabulous. Happy Gilmore is definitely a favourite. It's one that I can still, you know, go, I'll still go back and watch. The interesting thing is that the movie we just watched, The Ridiculous Six, has the same director as The Wedding Singer. So it's like a long time, you know, compatriot of Adam Sandler working together. They also did Click. Oh, yeah. But this movie... Like, doesn't really... I mean, it was really long and boring. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't think so. I didn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> I found I found it too long. So, so full disclosure, I, I've had a shit of a week and I rushed during my lunch break today on my iPhone. I, I watched it at 1.5 speed and I only got 40 minutes into it. And, and, and as I alluded to earlier, before we went live, Scott, my kids are in the other room screaming out. It's just been, it's been a hectic time. And that's also why I'm recording from home. And it's, it's a very, very foreign way to record a podcast with everyone in different places and no visual feed. But long story short, I, I, I was a little bit perturbed by the idea that I'd have to find another 
hour and 20 minutes to watch the rest of the film. It's a, it's a long film for an Adam Sandler film, right? Yeah. It was, actually. I did notice that, yeah. Cause I, but I had a similar thing where I had to re-watch it. I, I've, so I've basically seen, almost seen it twice in the last <laughs> days because I yeah. fell asleep. I was watching it with my daughter. She's 11 years old, and she was quite, we were both quite into it. Yeah. I fell asleep for about 30 minutes in the first half. <laughs> then I kept on, and I woke up, and, and, and I was refreshed. <laughs> so, and I managed to stay awake for the rest of it and quite enjoyed it. And so I was, I was thinking, well, I'll watch it again in the next couple of days. That's no bother, because I actually quite enjoyed what I saw. So I'll gladly yeah. watch it again. And I did watch it again, and it wasn't that bad. <laughs> That's good. Thinking maybe it's just been overlooked, and it hasn't got a review, or maybe someone spelled the name wrong when they wrote the review. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's easy to do with with Adam Sandler films, though, right? Because he has just peddled out like this, not the same film over and over again, but he's got his Adam Sandler formula, and it's not really. I I feel like slowly and slowly the the world of uh, film criticism has turned on him and said, "All right, we're done with the Adam Sandler thing." So of course, like you know, his twenty ninth film that sort of uses the same kind of jokes. It, it's, it, no, no one's going to probably take it as seriously as maybe they should. So that's a fair point. Maybe it has been overlooked. No. I think well, in terms of in terms of his actual performance, like as, as an actor, he put absolutely zero energy into yeah, <laughs> into into maybe. the into the few lines that he had. He's kind of known for that. I mean that's his style, that that's his you know, he he kind of brings that character to every film, but there is an actual you know, distinct lack of of energy from him in this <laughs> one. Like, has always got that same kind of laid backness thing. That's true. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it is really, really taking it to the next level on this one. And yeah, you're right. They are the same kind of recycled. You know, what would you, what do you call those those gags? Like, just it's, slapstick is generous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to call it just like poo bum wee wee joke <laughs> i do love a good pee and poo joke yeah that's absolutely i like it when they explain baseball for 20 minutes and, yeah. and, and make no jokes during the process <laughs> was that guy the, the guy that played that guy that john Totoro. does he play jesus in the big lebowski yeah yes. yeah yeah that's yeah. the guy ah uh, was him. I knew he looked familiar and I thought that was it, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Yeah, he was great. I really like him. But maybe maybe it's that carry on from the last film you saw him in, which is Big Lebowski. His <laughs> character in the Big Lebowski is unreal. He's so good. This film certainly did have a lot of cameos from big actors. Like we could quickly list off a lot of them. Bashemi. Yep, uh, Will Forte, Rob Schneider, obviously, Nick Swartzen, who are like the Adam Sandler crew. John Lovett. Then you got Nick Nolte. Yep. You have Lavelle Crawford from Breaking Bad. If you're a Breaking Bad fan, he plays Huel oh, in Breaking Huel. Bad and Better Call Saul. Adam Sandler's wife shows up as she as she tends to do in some of these movies as well. Her character is called Never Wears Bra, and she has a couple of lines. <laughs> that, was pre- uh, that, that gag got me. I laughed at that gag. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> that was it was early in the piece as well, so it was still okay to laugh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's called The Ridiculous Six. It's a play on The Magnificent Seven, similar to Tarantino's movie The Hateful Eight. It's a Western comedy. I think they came out at a similar time as well. Yeah, I think they might have been the same year. Yeah. 
it, it's just one of these Western comedies, which is like a movie we watched called Wagons East and similar to A Million Ways to Die in the West, which are all quite slapsticky. They're all about like people being robbed and murdered in the East. This one, Adam Sandler plays not a Native American character, but a character who was raised by Native Americans. That's right. He was, he was kind of adopted by them. Yeah. And so he's got like mystical powers where he can f- move really quickly and... and Turn himself into a tumbleweed by rolling. Oh, that was him. <laughs> I'm okay. sad. I'm sad. I missed that. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> it's a, it's sort of like a. He's like a Neo. He's like the one. Yeah. In a Western context. That's right. Mystical, mystical Indian powers. Native American Indian powers. But there's a total lack of like um, prophecy built into his character. You know, like he's yeah. got he's got these skills That's and he, he's got these talents, but. They don't lead anywhere grand. It's um, I mean, what is the what is the movie? He just about? has them. Yeah. So what what's the plot? Basically, Nick Nolte is Adam Sandler's uh, real father, like yeah. biological father. Bio dad. He, he shows up looking for his son. I think Adam Sandler's name is White Knife. White Knife or Tommy. And yeah, Tommy and and Nick Nolte basically says you're actually a stockburn and and I'm like a bank robber kind of thief character and I've got all this money buried. Uh, I remember your mother and they kind of connect and it's all good. And then um, oh Danny Trejo, who's kind of like an old school uh, rough looking Mexican guy, is is like the leader of another gang and he shows up looking for the money. And basically, they t- I think Nick Nolte tells Adam Sandler like I buried the money near a windmill and he kind of sends them to go and get it. And and that sets Adam Sandler off into this town where he meets a lot of characters, uh, including females who, who basically also slept with his father. And as the, as the plot goes on, you realize that there's like six of these guys that are all half brothers that have the same Nick Nolte father and they're all different races and styles um, yeah, they're all different styles of people. Yeah. One of them is non-verbal. Characters you could call them. <laughs> one of them. One of them's an alcoholic. One of them is non-verbal. One, one of them is the town idiot, Taylor yeah. Lautner Simpleton. from Twilight. The and, simpleton. And, and then there are others. Is that little? Is that little Pete? Is that the town idiot? Yeah, little Pete. Yes. Yeah, little, little Pete. Pete. So he's got the buck teeth. Can we pause? And was anyone else really disturbed by Little Pete? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I think he was certainly creepy. I reckon it'll stay with me for a little while. That, that <laughs> disruption to my balance. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a bit much. Did they say Little Pete had a really strong neck or something? Was that set up early? That was they. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because he got hung was part of you know it was part of a part of a plan to get to get money out of I don't know wild west gangsters or whatever you call them yes and so he was hung but and and he uh, he, he kept the crowd entertained and kept the attention <laughs> off Adam Sandler doing the heist yeah by by being hung and swinging around and putting on a bit of a show and a song and dance <laughs> yeah and the reason he was being hung in the town square was because he motorboated the breasts of the town sheriff or mayor or possibly both. I couldn't really tell which was, but he basically went up, put his face in the chest of the of the sheriff's wife, and then the sheriff oh, sentenced right. him to death really quickly. Yeah, that's in a that's in a distant future in the movie when yeah, they're that's when, a good hour and forty minutes. I think in. that that might have been after they've not once but twice already gotten fifty thousand yes. dollars and somehow lost it, and now they need to get it again, like. 
I, I don't know. Like I, I I did watch this movie, and I think I've watched this movie maybe three times in <laughs> full since it came out in 2016 or whenever it came out. Oh wow! Just in attempts. Wait, I went, really? I went Have through you? I went through Sandler periods where I would watch all all his movies and all of Rob Schneider's movies, and you know what? Okay. When I was growing up, I didn't like any of those guys. I was kind of contrarian in that way, but I really dig their stuff now. But this one, I. I don't know. It's just so patchy. Like, why? They're getting money. They're trying to save the dad. It just seems very generic, and I'm not sure what's going on at any point, really. But I know those two things for a fact. Well, there's there's a lot of gags that work, and then there's a lot of movie. And and the parts that don't work are, are, are still very long. Sometimes the joke starts off real strong, starts tapering off, like the baseball scene with John Turturro, where everyone's acting is really good. And they're trying and to get know, information like from him, good. aren't they? They're trying to find out from him a location or something like that. Yeah. And he's like, well, if you play my sport, then maybe I'll tell you where that is. And the joke is that he's inventing the rules as they go. So anytime something happens in the game, he's like, all right, if you bowl two, strike me out twice, then I'm out. And they get him twice. He's like, no, no, no. I said three times and I can steal a base. And then they just keep, it's honestly like a 10 minute joke about the rules in baseball seem like they were made up on the spot. Uh Yeah. And all good games are created that way. (laughs) Yes. You should be you should be making the games up on the spot as the problems arise. So, so Scott, where's the comedy? I want to ask you. I got two words for you uh, that I'd love to hear your comments on. Uh, donkey diarrhea. I thought you were going to say roll on. <laughs> what do you like? Do you mean the deodorant? Not donkey diarrhea deodorant. That was a roll on joke. <laughs> <laughs> Just had to clear that up. That's a ten out of ten gag. I like that. Yeah, the donkey diarrhea. That. Well, that was a big part of the film because he was kind of safe. Wasn't it like a pretty pretty key manoeuvre? Yeah. At the end, it was a big part of the plan and it was donkey diarrhea on demand as well. Are you telling me that they brought the donkey diarrhea back to cap the whole movie off? Because yeah, I did see right. I did see that at the beginning, but okay. It's the rule of threes, Hayden. Well, if you make the movie long enough, right, everyone will have forgotten about the donkey diarrhea, so it will be a legitimate surprise at the end of the film. I forgot. I have no <laughs> idea what the hell anyone's talking about right now. The donkey shat all over them. Yeah. And I can't even remember. But Rob the- Schneider had a donkey that would spray diarrhea on people. Uh, Morgan, you've seen the movie three three times. How do you not remember this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was... I don't know. I don't know. It's patchy. <laughs> Towards the end, there's a few more... Uh, Vanilla Ice shows up playing Oh, I was Mark just about Twain. to ask. Oh, that was uh, Vanilla Ice. Yeah. Yeah. So that was at the card game, right? And yes. it was at Vanilla Ice and, and David Spade? And John yeah. Lovitz, yeah. David Spade playing uh, General Custer yeah. of the Confederacy. War, yeah, yeah I, and, I enjoyed um, this sequence. And then uh, uh, Blake Shelton came in. Yes. A uh, uh, famous country singer, uh, former Sexiest Man Alive and married to Gwen Stefani. One of the judges on The Voice, I think, yeah. in the US. And he played White Up. Oh, he's White Up, was he? Oh, yes. Wow. Okay. I can, I can, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I get it. It was, it was an odd choice. Just because you've brought up, did you say Blake Shelton? Yeah. Is uh, Gwen Stefani's husband? Yeah. Yeah. I've been practicing this joke I wrote a couple of years ago, and and just because you mention him, I'm going to try it out. You let me know how this lands, okay? okay. So we'll, we'll let Scott um, tell you how it lands. Yeah, cool, awesome. I've got a, I've got a captive audience, I'm sure. So Blake Shelton, right? He was being interviewed um, shortly after he got engaged to Gwen Gwen Stefani, and he said, "Yeah, look, I just kept asking her to marry me, and she just kept saying no." But eventually, she was all no doubt, and she said yes. Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. 
I'll, I'll take that as a as a good. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not Thank bad. you. <laughs> <laughs> Better than some of the gags in this movie. Yeah. Are you saying? Are you, yeah, good. I am. I am looking. I am looking at the cast um, on Google on, on uh, just on Google right now, and there are a shit ton of people in this film. Um, but I, I want to know. So I was going to ask about Vanilla Rice. I'm happy to see he's in there, and I hope he got a few lines. But then also, I'm seeing John Lovitz. Was he good in it? I love John Lovitz. Uh, he, he was set up as this misogynistic dude who is running a poker game of very, you know, like it's a high buy in. You have to have $15,000 to buy in. Uh-huh. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. And um, he was good. He was good. And, he, and he's always good when he's being derisive to everyone Smarmy. around him. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Yeah, he's he's he is always good. He's a pretty bankable actor, that one. But yeah, I guess he was chucked in a pretty tough situation. He had a pretty tough script and stuff. There wasn't <laughs> he didn't have much to work with in that role, did he? <laughs> and by the time he shows up, you're about ninety minutes into this already, and you and you don't really want new characters to come in. <laughs> no, like I'm always happy to see Spade, and I'm always happy to see Lovitz, but you know. You got to have your time and your place. It tells you that you're like, oh, there's there's more to this movie. I thought it might be getting close, yeah. mm. but there's another half hour. It's not a point when you want the plot to be think- thickening. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it feels Thick like if, if these are the real bad guys, then why am I just meeting them now? Yeah, it's just another robbery, though. This is just another scenario where they can steal more money. So yeah. there's also Harvey Cattell who plays. Um, oh yeah, another rich guy another that they're trying to rob. <laughs> I think he might be running the whorehouse. What's his name? Smiley. Yeah, he- yeah. and yeah. and Rob Schneider quite violently decapitates him at the end. That was funny. Well, I- in the middle. Actually. Yeah, yeah. I wrote uh, in my notes. There are two funny parts in this movie, and the the second funny part is when his headless corpse is still firing his pistols. Yes. That is just funny. And then about an hour later, Steve Buscemi is holding the head, and he has the f- Harvey Cattell's severed head, and it's still doing that expression that it had right before Rob Schneider uh, snapped <laughs> it off with a spade. Yeah, yeah. And when that corpse is firing as well, he actually shoots two or three bullets into his own head as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It, and if, um, if Harvey Cattell doing the headless chicken thing, firing off shots, is one of the funny parts in the movie, then the other part is the drunk mute brother doing the impersonation of that when he sticks his coat up over his head and he does the impersonation. Oh, yeah. That's actually quite quite funny too. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I like about these Adam Sandler movies. They show me parts of, like, sides of humour that I didn't think could be as funny as they are. You know, like a simple thing, like a headless dude just firing guns. That shouldn't yeah. be funny, but it, it really lands. It's a it's about the acting, right? Yeah, Kaitel. Kaitel is just a tremendous comedic physical performer. How does he get roped into doing a film like this? Like, does he need the money? Surely not. It must just be fun. It must be fun. I don't know. Maybe maybe Adam Sandler is just yeah. Maybe everyone just in Hollywood is really good friends with Adam Sandler. He's like, hey, I've got this thing for Netflix. I want to get as many people in it as possible and. Do you want to do it? And then they, I don't know. A one in all in thing. If we all yeah, do it, yeah, exactly. exactly. You know, that kind of takes the heat off any individual. <laughs> there are people out there who say that Adam Sandler getting Harvey Cattell for his Netflix movie was the equivalent of Truly Rotten Potatoes getting Scott Owen for their podcast. Yes. Like, Why is they he doing? do say that. They do say that. <laughs> I've heard them say it. The, the some of the more Sandler-ish moments that because because Scott, you were talking about how your favorite movie were, of Sandler's is um, 
Happy Gil, uh, not Happy Gilmore. Yeah, yes, Happy, Happy Gilmore. Gilmore. No, Gilmore. Yes, yeah. Happy Gilmore. I always get uh, Billy Madison. Billy Madison. Yeah. Okay. So, so Happy Gilmore and Billy Madison are my two favorites, and still, like, there, there's still that sense of humor there um, from those movies that shines through a little bit in, in all of his like more modern films. Just like it's not even really a joke, but the way it's delivered. When uh, when they rock up into earlier on in the film, they rock up to us to a small town with the plan of robbing a bank to get some money, and as Sandler sort of trots into town, one of the one of the guys out on the street just says, "Who is this asshole?" And it's just played in this it's just played in this very modern way, and and, and jokes like that really really got me. And then later on, we're introduced to a woman. So. so Adam Sandler's character is trying to find his dad or is it, is this right? He's trying to find his dad who's just been kidnapped. Yeah. 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 He's quizzing a woman at a, at a, at a hotel, you know, do, do you know him? Have you seen him? And she goes, do I know him in the biblical sense? And it's like, well, no, no, no. Just do you know him? And she's like, yes, I know him. And I know him in the biblical sense. And she just keeps relying on that biblical sense. Like, throwaway joke I, I like stuff like that i think that's that takes me back to the billy madisons and the happy gilmore kind of jokes i believe that's the joke that was followed up by the first donkey diarrhea scene where rob schneider <laughs> playing a small mexican man had the donkey diarrhea all over the wall and his uh his classic line was that means he likes you mm. yes how come yes. there was no donkey diarrhea in billy madison so so you can see where <laughs> where my enjoyment Schneider picks up the slack for Adam Sandler, who surrounded himself with people who seem to be able to put some sort of energy into their performance. Mm. Schneider takes the reins and he always delivers. You know what I mean? His energy is always so high in these things with every line, every facial expression. His eyes are popping out of his head. His accent is insane every time. And and it's funny because Adam Sandler's surrounded by these five other ridiculous characters. So you've got Terry Crews. Um, you've got Luke Wilson, who is a bit like Adam Sandler. Like Luke Wilson plays on that on that kind of straight level. Yeah, I like Luke Wilson. And then you've got Jorge Garcia, for, uh, aka Hurley from Lost, who yeah. plays the the kind of deaf mute um, Herm character, who's who's almost like a, a homeless. Uh, how would you describe vagabond ish? Well, that- John Lovitz tells the story beautifully about how he only has one bottle left of this very expensive liquor, and the origin story of it was that. Some boy was dancing for pennies or something like yeah. 20 years ago and it happened to be that Herm and he had a relationship with Herm's mother and he's telling this story in front of Herm during the poker game as well. Herm's yeah. pretending to be um, Rob Schneider's like manservant or something. Yeah. Uh, and John Lovis insults Herm and his mother to his face. But yeah. the origin story is something like they're both just street performers or something. Yeah, he was singing the national anthem, but he was doing it really badly, and he and he couldn't pronounce the words. Because he's a mute, because he can't. Yeah, he can't pronounce the words, and he obviously couldn't sing in tune either. So, yeah, he was having this piss taken out of him, and poor Herm was taking it very personally, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, what? that's when it, that he he basically he killed John Lovitz, didn't he? I think yeah, he that's the suggestion. Murdered him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It he was followed sweet. him out. He followed him out of the room. He choked him or something. Oh yeah, he? yeah. Um, this movie cost more to make than Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. It did. Oh wow! Yeah, because The Hateful Eight, The Hateful Eight's like a bottle episode, isn't it? It's all in one location. 
you know. Yeah. Like, well, it's, it's like very maybe three locations, but yeah. yeah. He shot it on, on very expensive film. I was going to say it looked like it wasn't very expensive to make because it looked like all the sets and everything were all, you know, it didn't look like there was much. There's that much to be done. Yeah. Yeah, so that's really quite surprising. Hey, did anybody else think about the Three Amigos? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Rob, Rob, Rob Schneider. Oh, no, Three Amigos. Sorry, I got oh, confused. Yeah. <laughs> Is Three Amigos the, the one with Chevy Chase and Steve, Steve Martin? Martin, Martin yeah. Short. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. It, yeah. I, did, I did a bit, yeah. When I was watching it, I was like, oh, okay, this is a little bit like the Three Amigos. But, it was, yeah, but it, it, it was in just, I guess, aesthetically, it was, and it was just a bit of a classic old Western tale. Yeah, and the silliness of it all as well. But I mean, like, Three Amigos is a much better film, obviously. I, I think. Much better. I mean, they're, they're, they're different in a lot of ways as well, though. I mean, this. What, what am I fucking talking about? I saw 40 minutes of it at like <laughs> one and a half speed. I sh- shouldn't be trying to. Have a, well, actually, if you think about it. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just drop out of this conversation now. I got this, uh, I got this gag that I just remembered, and it's during the poker game. Man, I love that poker game. I don't know why. I guess it's just because Spade was there. Um, but. They're sitting around the table and somebody says something that surprises Rob Schneider's character and then he does that like home alone face. Yeah. He smashes his hands up against his cheeks and makes his it, eyes. It was all a big. symbol that they were doing that when he does that, when he puts it yeah, that was his right. his cue to the others to like help out. Because they were doing a heist in the background. They're trying to keep him yeah. distracted. Yeah, There's a lot of heists. Yeah. So I figured it was some sort of symbol to the to the rest of the gang. But David Spade says, I make that same face when I'm putting cologne on in the morning, especially when I'm home alone. <laughs> oh, he did too. That line confused me. I thought, what? <laughs> and now I get it. Yeah, now why? When I'm home alone. I get it now. <laughs> I'm glad you cleared that up because it bothered me. I was like, what? This isn't... I don't understand what, how this can be funny in any way, shape or form. <laughs> That's just weird. Really, and I know David Spade's quite funny. I quite like him. I haven't seen him in a lot of things, but I quite like him. I want. I want to ask, as someone who didn't see the whole thing, I don't. I, I don't. Can, can I get some more clarity on? So, so, so the film. The film sets out Adam Sandler's characters going from town to town on this on this um, quest to find his dad, who's been kidnapped, and get this fifty thousand um, dollars. And as he goes on the adventure, he keeps serendipitously bumping into half-brothers because yep. his father got around. And so I saw him I saw him meet Rob Schneider's character. I saw him meet Taylor Lautner's character. I'm only just learning this person's name today because I didn't know who he was. And then I just got up to where they met. Is it Jorge or George Garcia? It's George. Jorge Garcia. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's Jorge. But but Terry Crews and Luke Wilson, who are they? Who are they? Terry Crews plays are their piano. Characters? He plays piano in a saloon. Like a ragta- uh, ragtime guy playing harvey cattell's yes yes yeah he plays in harvey cattell's whorehouse luke 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 wilson Wilson owes him money maybe i forget how he gets introduced but his backstory is that he was the bodyguard for abraham lincoln and when (laughs) they were at the play luke wilson had to go pee and john wilkes booth assassinated lincoln (laughs) while he was peeing and so it was his fault 
And then, of course, that plays in later. He jumps in front of Adam Sandler and saves him from being shot. And he finally makes up for letting okay. um, Lincoln die. But we don't find out that origin story until even Very later. Very late. And yeah. then it's just a question of like, everybody's always asking Luke Wilson, why do you drink so much? And it's actually a very funny scene. He gets in a fight with Harvey Keitel at Harvey Keitel's saloon. And the whole time, Harvey has beaten the shit out of this dude. And he's got this drink in his hand, Luke Wilson. And he's protecting the drink at all costs. He's like flying all over tables. He's being beaten <laughs> all over the bar. And no matter what, this drink is just not spilling a drop. It's it's really, it's very funny. I really, I think that was probably my favorite scene in, yeah. the, in the whole thing. If I was to like categorize each of the ridiculous brothers, you've got Rob Schneider is a Mexican... I don't know. <laughs> He's a Mexican stereotype. Uh, this Lautner guy is like a simple dummy. The Jorge guy is a big, fat, dumb, mute, deaf guy. That's him. He's yep. like a wild man. Yeah. He's a wild man. Okay. And then Ian, uh, Ian, what's his fucking name? Luke Wilson is 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 he sort of like a bodyguardy ish? Like is 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 that his? He's a pretty straight or? character. He doesn't have that much oh, personality. Okay. And his storyline that we just mentioned about being a bodyguard, I don't think you learn that until about 80 minutes into this movie. <laughs> and you're like, why are we learning this now? So he's just a guy. So there's, there's nothing that remarkable about him when he's, no, he's introduced. Just what about Terry Crews? Oh, he's a drunk. Right. And Terry Crews? Terry Crews is funny because he is a piano player and they sort of stray away from the fact that he's black. They don't make that the stereotype. But then later on in the movie, he says to them, like, they're all having a deep heart to heart and revealing things about themselves. And he says to his half brothers, you guys are the first guys I've ever told I was black. Like, <laughs> one, one, one of his parents is black and one of his parents is white, and he yeah, lets right. them know that. And, and it's, like, meant to be a, a huge secret that nobody else knows. I get the feeling that that joke gets used quite a bit in a lot of films and a lot of a lot of TV and stuff, that whole, you know, a blindingly, obviously, black person. Yeah. Don't, but it's, I've got to confess, you know, I've got to tell you I'm actually black and, yeah. <laughs> It tends to happen a lot, right? It wasn't. It doesn't get any points for originality in this film. That joke, definitely well, not. Right. <laughs> I mean, for a movie that I mean, let's be honest, does not very gracefully handle race. There's a. I, I saw some like rice farmer hats. Yeah. Uh, in the baseball scene, the very first thing you see is a sign that says "No Injuns." Oh yeah. I N J U N S. And the, it opens with yeah, Steve Zahn. Yeah. Being being very racist. Yeah. yeah, And, you know, it's one of those things where you're meant to think, oh, they're parodying racism. They're saying, this is bad. This is wrong. But then Don't be like this. Rob Schneider doing a During the production <laughs> yeah. of this movie, there was a story that went around because this was one of Netflix's first original movies and, and they just signed this deal with Adam Sandler to make four, I think, and I think that's been extended. Anyway, there was a story that came out in, like, the movie Trades where um, Native American extras walked off the set in, like, disgust at the... Yeah. I read that. Whoa. I, 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 they ended up saying, like, it was, like, 10 people out of 200, and, and we all, we fixed it. It wasn't a big deal. But that was the story, like, before this movie came out. That yeah, was what yeah, people had that. heard about it, was Adam Sandler's playing a Native American, and all these Native American people walked off the set. Yeah. They just didn't think it was funny, though. That's not, that's not a good start. They weren't actually offended. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're like, that's just one too many donkey diarrhea jokes for me. Yeah, they're like, that's right. Uh, I need something a little classier. So, I mean, this is this is written by Adam Sandler and, and the same writing partner who wrote Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore and The Wedding Singer and Waterboy and Big Daddy. Yeah. 
all of the classics. Yeah, that's confusing. It's mm. not, it doesn't, I mean, like, it, there, there's that vibe that, like I said, there are some moments in, in the 40 minutes I saw that were on, on that same sort of level, but it's it also, I don't know, it felt it felt long. And, and I will say, watching at 1.5 speed made the jokes a little more pithy. Like, I was well, as soon as, I don't know if it was just coincidence, I feel like the first 10 minutes was like, oh man, this is, this, there's, there've been no jokes, this is quite boring. And then I put it on 1.5 speed because I'm like, shit, I'm never going to finish this movie in time. And um, suddenly I found myself laughing more. So I don't know if the jokes picked up then or if the pacing was too slow and it was funnier when it was faster. I think it did. I think the cheese was added. A lot of cheese was added after, you know, the movie kind of did get into its first half an hour or something. I don't think right. there was a cheese on the taco in the beginning. <laughs> Uh, there was definitely a lot of cheese added to the taco throughout the film. Yeah, right. Okay, there you go. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I, I'd say that it wasn't that the movie had no funny moments or funny scenes. It was that they were too spread out and it was too long between bits. All yeah. of the attempts at comedy in that first 10 minutes were really weak and like, yeah, not not sure if they're actually trying to make jokes or not. Like the, the when he is showing his powers off for the first time, Adam Sandler, he buys five pounds or five bags of flour or something like that. And then these five dudes rock up, led by Will Forte or Will Forte, and they're part of this gang. They're called the Left Eye Gang because yeah. apparently they all take out their right eye and put it in a jar, and that's how they show their commitment to the gang. They wear eye patches. And then he's like, "How are you going to beat us? There's five of us and only one of you." And then Adam Sandler throws a flower bag up into the air like 50 meters. Yeah. And then goes and attacks a guy. And so Got, then like, flash powers. Yeah. yeah. And then he's like, "I only see four guys. It's four against one." Yeah. And that happens maybe two or three times. Uh, yeah. I guess. I think he might even go through the whole gang one by one and that was the other thing is Adam Sandler as we said he has this this mystical fighting power he can move really fast but it's really cheaply done like for yeah. an expensive movie it's not a good special effect every time he does a trick I'm like uh, it, yeah it just doesn't it doesn't look realistic no it didn't look realistic but it didn't look funny either yeah so you're left feeling for a film that had a big budget that had Netflix behind it or whatever they could have, yeah, they really could have done a little bit better. A little bit better would have gone a long way with those <laughs> those special effects moments with his, with his special powers. Yeah. I agree. And the title Definitely at the agree. beginning, it says The Ridiculous Six presented in 4K and then we're given these sort of visual effects within <laughs> the first two minutes. We've got to understand that most of the money went to Harvey Keitel's boathouse. Um, <laughs> Oh, he's yeah. like, uh, he got Adam Sandler to paint it for him, and he then took another thirty million for the yeah. paint job. I I had an issue with when Steve Buscemi holds Harvey Keitel's severed head. It's a good prosthetic, but it still looks cheap. It's something yeah. about it still looks like funny and silly, and you can tell that it's plastic. But that that's another example of the times where I'm like, the budget isn't really on screen. All the sets they use just seem like there must be a place in LA in the desert area where there's um, like a fake Western town because it seems like everyone just uses that same it's, set. It is the same one from um, Back to the Future 3. Oh, oh okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the, the same same town, I think. Yeah, so that's what I was thinking. I was thinking this just looks, it all just looks so generic. You know, they just must just roll movies <laughs> through these built sets, you know, Um cheap and cheerful style really kind of quickly and easily and I thought that it must have just been a, a low-budget film where they somehow managed to score these cameos. No, that was that was one of the most mysterious things about the whole film. How did they get 
people to agree to be in it. So many people. Like we discussed this earlier about the plot. I mean, it's not like reading the script or reading the or understanding the plot is much of a draw card, really. It, it didn't really have anything kind of any kind of X factor about it. It was just, it's just a pretty straight up dumb film. Like it's obviously just a straight up dumb film. <laughs> yeah. So how do they get these people to agree to it? I know, like. Yeah, I find this kind of rather odd. I didn't. It didn't feel like there were people or humans behind this. You know, it felt like it was the. It was the Netflix was, algorithm. Yeah. yeah yes. <laughs> the, the, the Netflix algorithm had told everybody what they had done. Yes, Adam, you wrote this. Yes, Adam, you starred in this, and then they just agreed and were like, "Okay, yes, we are in this." Yeah. So you run Netflix algorithm for ten years, and it does all these stats and sees like how many eyeballs watch something for how long and what they like and then it writes you this script it's like if you have adam sandler with a cameo from norm mcdonald and a bit for david spade and rob schneider you will get this many viewers and you know there hasn't been many westerns i think the western comedy is one of the toughest ones because it seems like as a genre it strikes out more often than it hits yeah, well, a lot is... of people just see the cover of a Western film, see the, the photo, and just go, "Yeah, it's a Western." You know, I can't really be, be bothered with it. So it, it immediately alienates a lot of people. I, so. think, I think so. Like, I feel like you have to be a Western kind of person. You know, like, "Oh, I love Westerns," and then it's and then it's your bag. You either are or you aren't. But it's a bit like country music in America. Like, it alienates a lot of people, but there's still. A fuckload of people who are going to be into it. It's like there's a lot of people in America who just aren't going to go for bad boot scooting country music. But still, you can still sell millions of copies of your albums if you play boot scooting country music. Yeah, right. The population is so incredibly huge. So, yeah, I think maybe the boot scoot country music might be just a Netflix algorithm as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it was, so, so this is. This is Spotify a... algorithm or something. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is a played out stat, so I'm sorry if I'm retreading old ground, but with the way that they do track all the stuff that you watch on these streaming platforms, House of Cards, when they first cast Kevin... Spacey. What's his name? Kevin Kevin Spacey. Spacey. I was going to say Kevin Bacon. Uh, When they first cast Kevin Spacey in that and decided to put that together, they pulled a bunch of data and and what it said was that like heaps of people were watching the original british house of cards and those same people were watching heaps of kevin spacey films and that played a big role that played a big part into why they decided to reboot it with him in it and stuff like this so so who knows like maybe maybe there was a big thing with adam sandler and um westerns probably not because i think part of the deal was that adam sandler brought his whole catalog onto netflix or something like this as it was a, a part of the deal? deal, I think as well. Yeah, I think Netflix saw that a lot of Adam Sandler movies were getting huge play around the world, even like twenty-year-old okay. ones, like we said, Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore, and so they signed him to an exclusive deal. I think he used to make movies with like Sony, and um, uh-huh. yeah, they, they they gave him a four-picture deal, and now he's still making them for them. He's done like six or something. So they don't know what their audience wants, and they've gone out and got it. It's the tooey side of the business, of the entertainment business, really, because even just the, the the way the conversation's gone over the between us over the last few minutes, it's all just gone very kind of commercial and like how you know we're talking about Adam Sandler, who is and was a great actor and has done some really great films. I don't know a great actor, but he's certainly a damn funny bastard. So yeah, Netflix have just signed him up and gone. Well, we'll just chuck, we'll, we'll put. It, 
we'll put out his crappy new stuff so that we can have <laughs> his back catalog as well. And it's like what, what record companies do with bands and stuff as well, you know. Like, I know I've had this conversation with Jimmy Barnes because he's, you know, and he's there when he's put out records over the last five or ten years or whatever, it does his head in because he's trying to get the radio stations to play his new songs, but he can't compete with his old material. He can't compete with his own old stuff to get his new stuff on the radio. And it's tragic, and it's because the algorithm says, no, we're just going to keep playing working-class man and we're going right. to keep playing a fan. So we don't have any room on our station for your new material because we've got enough of you. And it's it's and uh, you know it's a tragedy, but that's what the algorithm is. and it's out of his hands. The the songs are bigger than him now. He can't even if he wanted to say, well, you know what, you get none of it if you don't even get my new stuff. They say, well, hang on, no, we get to play your old stuff even if you don't want us to. You know, like it's not. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't he doesn't necessarily get the end say on on that even. Yeah. I feel I feel like I've played into that same problem though because. I think, well, well, didn't Cold Chisel put a record out maybe like five or six years ago and I didn't listen to it? Yeah, Blood Moon, 2019. So last year Cold Chisel put out a, a record. I didn't listen to it. I don't know, like maybe it's an awesome record. Yeah, maybe, but, uh, but it's, uh, you know, that's, it's hard because, you know, you love, you love bands, artists, movies, directors, actors and stuff. You love them for, for what they were at a certain time as well. And as we know, we all change, we all evolve and that. Some people go with you on the evolution and some people just don't. And yeah. that's, that's what evolution is. It's not, you know, it's not a it's not a one shoe fits all journey for artists, you know. You're gonna win some and you're gonna lose some along along the way. And right. I, you know, and that's what Netflix are banking on when they throw these multi million dollar deals at these actors like Adam Sandler and they put them in these crap films. And they go, well, at least we're going to, you know, we've already, we're already winning because he's Adam Sandler and he's done Happy Gilmore and mm. all these films, you know, we're, all, we're already winning. He's already, he's already bankable. You know, they just go with it and they can afford to throw all this money on these new films, on these four new films or whatever they've been signed up for. And yeah, you know, everyone's going to watch it. We're watching it. People are going to watch it just because of the names that are in it. And things aren't things aren't always linear with with entertainers and artists as well. Like the things that they do don't necessarily move in a in a linear progression in a direction. They go all over the place. Like um, this one might not have been that great for Adam Sandler, but one that came out in 2012, I think, with Andy Samberg. That's my boy. I, I, not many people like that one. I fucking love that one. I'll put that... Uh, that's I, I'll, that's I'll probably second it, or okay. third for me. I reckon Billy Madison's my favourite Adam Sandler, but maybe second or third is this one he put out a few years ago, ago called That's My Boy. Um, so, yeah, you, you just never know. Sometimes Jimmy Barnes might come out with a with a dang hit. I'm just, well, I'm just wondering maybe maybe if I could hack into the Spotify servers i could find out what people who are listening to jimmy barnes are also listening to and i could sort of get in contact with jimmy barnes now mm. i know someone who might have his number so <laughs> we can maybe talk about that after the podcast and and i'll pair him up with whoever else they're playing and put together a super group and i'll be the manager and i'll make a bunch of money how's that sound there you go. <laughs> oh, that's the algorithm. It sounds yeah. like Netflix need to do a remake of House of Cards with Adam Sandler starring. Is that what you're telling that me, sounds Hayden? About right. That's 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 where I was going. Yes, thank mm, you. Jimmy Barnes <laughs> does the soundtrack. Yeah, it even happened before there was data to rely on. Like, look at Run right. DMC 
Aerosmith and Run DMC, perfect yeah, example, all exactly together right. under one roof. <laughs> so, what 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 would we expect to see Living End pairing up with in the next couple of years? Then, oh God, it would have to be like Tones and I, wouldn't it? Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I would like to. Hear um, that. I don't know what's that English um, English redhead singer Ed solo. Ed Sheeran, there you go. Yeah, yeah we can so. hook you up with Citizen K if you want a bit of a hip hop flavor in there. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Maybe we could do a, a rockabilly slash hip hop thing. Uh, that's something that the, that the algorithms haven't quite put together yet. Yeah. Well, mm, yeah, that's well, a good name for a band, the Algorithms. <laughs> we'll reach out. It's all coming together. I have a friend called Ash Glunwald, who's who I've played. He's a blue. Do you know who I'm? Yeah. 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 He's a blues guy, and, and I've played on his albums, and we've toured together lots, and we're actually quite good mates as well. And he's he's very much into technology, and a lot of his albums use, you know, beats and and synthesizers and and epic, you know, sounds that come from a computer. Mm-hmm. And I've tried so hard to convince him to call his, to call one of his albums "Algorithm and Blues." He's <laughs> <laughs> not having it. <laughs> he's not. He's not signing up. He's not having it. He's like, yeah, whatever. That wasn't. Yeah, I heard you the first. Right. You know what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, you mustn't have heard me right. <laughs> <laughs> no, you you don't you don't get it. It's like rhythm and blues, but it's algorithm and blues. When you guys were coming up with names for your third album, did you come up with modern artillery? Oh yeah, I don't know. It might have been a collaboration. I can't remember exactly who came up with it, but. <laughs> Yeah, um, uh, yeah. Because it's the same. It's, it's definitely the same realm as that um, alg- 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 algorithm and, and blues. Yeah. yeah. Do you know? It's funny. I've I never I never understood that album title to be a pun like that. Yeah. Well, there you go. It's not. It's not a funny. It's it's not so obvious. I don't think. Is it still a pun if it's not funny? <laughs> I think that's what they call a bu- they call it a before and after on Burjo's catchphrase where you merge <laughs> two two phrases together. <laughs> Oh, this is excellent! I can't, I can't believe we've gone from um, the ridiculous to Burjo's catchphrase. He's got, an, he's got an excellent Twitter account. I highly recommend. What Burjo? Yeah, 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 yeah. He has oh, one really? of the best Twitters. Yeah. yeah, it's like a old man Twitter, but it's old school jokes. Oh, you know, he's still they're hosting. modern. Yeah, and because he's old, he doesn't use the space bar, so he just puts a period between <laughs> sentences, but they're all just next to each other. Yes, because because back in the olden days, that's how they that's how they wrote letters to each other, just with full stops, <laughs> between telegram words. style. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> Every stop. tweet ends yeah. with stop. No, he's using the geriatric size font on his phone. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. So going back to this movie quickly before I diverge us again, um, there's a the characters in this who are like the left eye gang or whatever. They they rip out their eye and they wear uh, an eye patch, and it reminded me of um, seeing The Living End in 2006 on the State of Emergency tour at the Canberra National Convention Centre, where I believe someone threw a Qantas sleeping mask on stage, and Scott Owen, the bass player, played a song wearing a blindfold. Do you remember this at all, Scott? No. I, no, oh. I don't. <laughs> well, I threw that. That was me. That was me. No, that threw that up no, there. it was me. <laughs> it wasn't him. It was me. He's taking credit for the one thing that I've ever done in my life. Oh, wow. That's, um, that's quite impressive. I'm glad so I did, can, even though I can't remember. You can play, you can play without looking. It's, 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 a big, it's a big instrument you play. 
You can play the double bass with your eyes closed, even those intricate living end bass lines. Is, is that right? Well, sort of. But the thing is, I can only play with my eyes. Oh, this is hard to explain. I can, <laughs> it doesn't have any fret. Well, yeah, exactly. So you don't need your eyes, right? <laughs> I, I need my eyes if I can't. Then you just ballpark it. I need either my eyes or my ears. Both, both is epic, but one yeah, or the right. other. Hey, if I can hear myself properly, then I don't hey. need my eyes because I can pitch. But if I can't hear myself properly, then I need my eyes because I need to see where I'm putting my finger. I need to do like these imagined measurements and like, okay, if I want to hit a C note, yeah. I need that far away from the nut. But if I want to hit a C sharp, I need to be a bit further. And so I kind of look at it and I kind of know how far it kind of looks. So you're saying you, you need you need tones and eyes to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And just a just a follow up to those bass guitar related questions as well, Scott. When you play like a standard electric bass guitar, does it just make you ill? Does it make the gag reflex just like <laughs> blur, you know? Yeah, you're like, I can't stand on this and play it at all. In all honesty, it makes me think, why the hell have I been lugging this giant <laughs> yeah, <true. laughs> trying to on this endless struggle to try and amplify the bloody thing in a rock and roll band and big venues and try and make it sound good and can't even hear what I'm playing and I'm trying to figure out whether I'm in tune by looking at it. <laughs> um, what? So I play an electric bass and I go, oh my God, this is just so easy. Mm. Then I think, no, rock and roll, it's, it's not, it's, it's, a, it's rebellious music. It shouldn't be fun. It's about struggle. Yeah, it's about struggle. It's about challenge. And it's about frustration, you know, angst, being angry. And I'm angry because I can't do my Because my back hurts. Yeah, exactly. I'm angry because I have to carry my bass to school. Oh, my God. Headline broke it. I'm angry because, yeah, I've got it all back. <laughs> Seeing as we're on the living end, I, I, I wouldn't. I would love to keep pummeling through with questions about the living end. A little bit of an ulterior motive getting you on the podcast about movies. You know, I feel like we should talk about you know your life's work or at least some of it. This is a really really basic question, but I'm interested to know: Do you have a favorite song or record that you've put out under that uh, under the living end? Oh, exactly. I do, but it changes from time to time. As a bit of a constant favourite record, I think White Noise is because, well, I mean, it wasn't my favourite before it was made. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It it was when it was made, and it still is now that others have been made after it as well. Does the the where and what you were doing and and where your life was play into that, or is that purely on um, the way the music sounds? No, because what happened... At the beginning of making that record, and when I say the beginning, I mean when we were in the rehearsal room five days a week for a few months or whatever, putting material together, making demos. You know, we recorded probably close to 100 songs or something and then whittled it down to the 12 or whatever that ended up on the album, but spent heaps of time just working on music together. And there was a conversation where Chris kind of said to me, hey, look, I've got all, I'm bringing all these ideas into the rehearsal room Rather than just kind of going, Chris, this is Chris saying to me, he's like, rather than just kind of going, nah, 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 can you just not do that? Can you just not do that? Can you not say no to any mm-hmm. ideas? Just mm-hmm. say yes, 
every idea. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay, sure. I don't want to upset you, so sure. I threw the everything, and I and I had a, a much more positive. I, I, rather than going, no, I don't think that's going to work as far as an idea goes. No, that's not going to work. I'd just go, no, no, no. There's no saying no here. There's just like, right. yes, let's get whatever we can out of this idea. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. That's fine. But let's just initially just, yes, give it a, give absolutely everything a go. And that really paid off by doing two things. It put us in a really, it, it bonded us. It also meant we were able to kind of explore creativity a bit more broadly and we found this sound that we never really realized that we had this kind of i don't know how to describe it but it feels like we, we described it in the rehearsal room when we found this sound as it sounding like a pair of leather pants mm. it was like we right. like gallop this kind of almost biker music kind of gallop and heaviness and also chris had got a new pedal which was an octave pedal as well which sounded really tough as well so it was kind of yeah all of these kind of things came together and then we yeah we had a good time uh, making the record as well it was yeah it was just all, all kind of really positive that's really nice that plays into it but i think it's definitely um it shows in the music that there was you know actual exploration in creativity right. happening. Is that typical that you'd um, write that many songs before going in and committing to a track listing? Or, or is it because of that exploratory nature that you were able to sort of allow that many to flourish before you cut them down? Yeah, that was a particularly fruitful period. And also, we were all living in Melbourne at that point as okay. well. So we were able to just go into the rehearsal room every day and we had our gear set up, so we'd just go in there every single yeah. day and just play, 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 play for like however many hours, you know, like eight hours a day or something. Right. We were, and we had a recording facility set up in there, just as a basic recording facility. So we did, we made so many songs, you know, we'd be working on kind of like, I don't know, at least half a dozen songs every week for months. Wow. Yeah, I mean, normally we would have, you know, we would have around the 50 or 60 mark mm-hmm. songs or we'd start whistling them down to have many end up on the album. But yeah, that was a particularly, I don't know, what do you call it? Fruitful. Fruitful? Yeah. And so conversely, when you were, when you were doing the self-titled first album, what was that like? Because you, you guys would all have been a lot younger back then. I'm not sure, maybe it's rude to ask how old you were back then. What was the writing process like then? And, and I guess... Was did you know that you had interest from Modular or from other record labels at the time? Were you writing for a label or did it just come fortuitously? No, we didn't know. So back then, we, we released two EPs before that, one called Hellbound, one called It's For Your Own Good. And mm-hmm. then we went and did, a, did the single that had Prisoner Society and Second Solution on it. And then it right. had a couple. B side, it was like a double A side single or whatever. It was just another EP, really. But it was mm. just like two songs and then a couple of other songs as well. And then we went and did the album. And what we used to do in those days was we would just write songs. And we'd always be rehearsing during the week or whatever and playing every weekend. And we'd play, we'd play gigs on the weekend and we'd put the money away. And when we had enough money to go and spend whatever, three or four days in a recording studio, we would do it. We'd go. We'd, we'd take the best five or six songs that we'd had had written over the last six or however many months, 
and we'd do gigs and we'd save up money. And when we had a few grand saved up to go and we'd go and spend it on on recording, and that would be what consists of, you know, that would make up whatever the whatever the recording is. So our first right. album literally still just in that mode, and it was while we were recording that album that we were starting to get some interest. It certainly wasn't until after it was recorded and done that we knew that we were going to be signing a, a record uh-huh. deal. Or, like that, we thought we were just going to be doing the same as what we've done with our EPs, which is just small distribution deals with, with NDS or whatever. And so, so was that interest that was picking up? Was that a in relation to live shows? You guys were garnering interest, um, or, or, or bringing big crowds to your shows, or was it purely based off the um, the strength of the of the EPs and such that you'd been putting out and recording? There was a bit of both because we were always playing, we we're always touring, and it was kind of when. I think it was pretty much when we were getting plays on, on like Triple R and PBS and stuff, but when Triple uh-huh. J was playing us, because this was like 1998 or whatever, mm-hmm. so Triple J was, was huge, you know. It was like the big the big nation, the big national radio youth radio yeah. station. It was when they started playing Prisoner Society and Second Solution and oh, mostly Prisoner Society, though. We were on tour supporting Jebediah, um, cool. and they had... You know, they had songs that were pretty big on Triple J, so they were pulling pretty good crowds to their gigs on this massive Australian tour with tons of dates that we were their support band on. And that was when Triple J started playing our, started playing Prisoner Society a lot. So that was good because people were coming to the gigs knowing who we were. Like the difference between the crowds at the beginning of that tour and then a couple of months later at the end of that tour was yeah. pretty obvious. It was pretty obvious that we were starting to get some radio airplay by the end of that tour because everyone knew who we were all of a sudden. Yeah, so it'd be it'd be fair to say that by the end of '98, with Triple J's support, um, you guys were fairly cemented as sort of the rockabilly heroes of Australia. And then you moved on, and and you guys made Roll On, which is probably my favourite Living End album, with experimental songs like Silent Victory and Killing the... I, I think the the way that those songs are quite experimental. But it sounds like a totally different approach to songwriting. Yeah, it was, because we, cause we were like, you know, the, we did we did just kind of get lumped in with all the punk rock bands and stuff of, of the late 90s. That we, were, you know, we we wanted to prove that no, we we actually we can play our instruments. We don't just yeah. play buttons and <laughs> record songs. Got influences that can actually, you know, play that know the craft of their instrument, and we want to show that off. So far out, man! Did we ever bloody well go and show that off? We just tried to put as many parts into those songs as possible with as many different weird timings and time changes and. Oh, it was a bit of a, it's a bit hectic. Felt like you, that you maybe were, were trying to prove something at that point? Yes, yes, you think yeah. so? I do, certainly. I went to, um, you guys did a tour, I think it was called the Retrospective Tour, which was kind of like the coolest idea that you can do, which was each, you, you had like a residency at a venue and each night you would play a different album from start to finish. 
Yeah. What was the rehearsal like for that? Are you rehearsing the day of each gig to to remember the songs, or was it just months and months of of? Because it's I don't know how many songs, but it must be like eighty songs over six nights a week or something. Something like that. It was eighty something songs. Yeah, and we we had we did rehearse for months and months and months leading up to it to try and relearn relearn all of those songs. And some of them we'd never played live. Like, yeah. Actually, a lot of them never played live a lot of them we hadn't even played since we recorded them so it was it was weird but it was actually do you know the serendipitous thing about that whole experience i loved it 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 turned it, it was a massive task but i'm so glad we did it but the serendipitous thing about that was going having this notion of like i think i now finally like by by learning and and revisiting all of this this whole catalog that we've got I think I actually understand why people like that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think I see what all the fuss is about, was about. I like that. You know, I hope I don't come across too big-headed by saying that. But um, Not at all. But it was, it was a really nice feeling to have. It was like, you know, playing, the, playing Roll On, was, the album was like, man, this is, this is pretty great. This is a really good feeling. <laughs> Because yeah. like, there's so much, so much time between then and now, and I think lots of people have ha- have that exact same feeling when they look back on anything that they've done throughout their life, right? And what you've done uh, across the career of Living End is is much larger than someone's, I don't know, hobby art project. And they they they're going through their garage and they pull out all of the paintings that they did over the last twenty years, and you're like, man. I, I see why I liked this so much or I see why, you know, my friends supported my art so much because this is actually pretty sick. But you did that on a much larger scale. Because at the time, you're so critical about yourself. Yeah, exactly. You see the faults in it and, and you kind of, I guess you tend to kind of focus on those. I guess you have to, you know, when you're working it, when you're actually working your project, you need to focus on its weakest points and try and iron out the creases and all that kind of stuff and put some labor into it once you can have that perspective yeah once you get well that retrospective <laughs> right right when you were setting up uh, the retrospective tour did you have any fear that you have some albums will be more popular than others were you ever like oh man maybe on friday night we just not as many people will come we won't sell enough tickets like you know album number five isn't as popular as album number one or something was that ever a fear yeah, well, we were sure that that was going to happen. We knew that some albums weren't going to, you know, sell as many tickets as other albums. And I think, I wish I could remember the numbers because they're pretty impressive. But when we did the Corner Hotel in Melbourne, so we had seven albums, I think it was. And we would normally do seven, I think we did seven nights in Adelaide and seven nights in Perth or whatever. And Sydney, we'd added a couple, but Melbourne. So we did our seven albums. And I think Roll On, we might have done two or three nights of. Right. The first album, I think we did like five nights of our first album. So <laughs> wow. we played the seven albums, but then an, an extra couple of roll-ons, so that's like nine. <laughs> and then another like four or something, four or five or something of our first album. I think we did 13 nights or 14 nights in a row at the Corner Hotel. And it was kind of, it was pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was quick. It was like turning up for literally like turning up for for work. Yeah, you know, like turning up to the same place fourteen days in a row to play 
to play gigs. It was like, it was bizarre. Did you ever get up on that stage and get angry at the bass player who was there yesterday and left his beer there and then realized <laughs> it was you or, you know, something like that? <laughs> well, but like I said, yeah, it was just like turning up to work. Like the, the, the staff at the corner hotel was, was yeah. G'day, how you going? How's your day? That's funny. That's so cool. I got to ask you, um, I'm just noticing that Roll On came out in 2000 and so so too did Limp Biscuits Rollin'. <laughs> were you influenced by them or were they influenced by you? I'm, I'm trying to find... Did they, did they steal it from yeah. you? I think we were signed to the same record label as them too. Wait, really? What? Did their records come out on... It was an, not Inertia. Um, Weren't they on Indoscope or something? Indoscope, that's there, right. That's right, there's confusion yeah. because we were signed to... Oh, I've got a mental blank. It was the, the Warner Brothers label in, in America that was started by Frank Sinatra. Reprise? Oh, Reprise. Yeah. yeah. Reprise, that's right. You, th- you were thinking there might have been a little bit of dirty backdoor A&Ring going on between the labels or something like this. Some demos being passed between Fred Durst and, and you. Every artist on the um, na- on the label needs a roll song this year. That's year right. 2000. <laughs> Yeah, well, it was, yeah, the, the rolling into a new millennium, maybe. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but we did end up playing a lot of festivals that Limp Bizkit were playing as well in America. So we did see, yeah, a lot, hell of a lot more of them than I ever really fancied to. <laughs> <laughs> Dig. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are a couple of Limp Biscuit apologists on this podcast, but we'll, we'll let it slide. I can imagine that after seeing them once side of stage, you could be, maybe be like, all right, I've, I've had my fill. Interesting. Ro- interestingly, Roland goes for three minutes and 33 seconds. Now I got to find out how, how long does Roll On go for? Let's see. Should, should we should we get back to the movie, guys? I'm sorry, not having seen it, I don't have anything else to <laughs> I mean, add to that side of the conversation. <laughs> no, I mean that was pretty good. I felt like the lead character in a movie called The Fanatic that we reviewed last week, um, who is a fanatic, uh, but and that's directed by Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit. Yeah, and stars John Travolta. Right. So, so it's all come full circle. Yeah, it's yeah. actually right. been the perfect rap. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a rap. Yeah, I think we've held Scott for probably far yes, too long yes. for, for talking about one Adam Sandler movie while he's in his daughter's bedroom or something as well. So uh, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show, for indulging us in, in some living end questions, for watching an entire Adam Sandler movie that's not one of his best and taking the time to, to chat to us tonight. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Could you give a, a rating to this film maybe out of 10? Oh, if- true. Oh, uh- I'd give it... With with an extensive rationale. <laughs> yeah, you can, <laughs> and you can use a decimal point. You don't have to round up to a full score if you want. My heart gives it a low rating because mm. I don't think the film was made with a lot of heart. Mm. So, four out of ten. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My gut, for some reason, wants to give it quite a decent rating because I just think that there were some moments in the film that were just quite good that made me go, oh, look, I'm not hating life because I'm watching this. <laughs> what about your kidneys? How are your kidneys feeling about it? My kidneys, yeah, what's, what's the function of a kidney? It's, it's a they filter. Process, yeah. yeah, they process Toxins the liquid and, and yeah. stuff. Yeah, so I think it's good in my, in my, in my kidney. I think it's like... <laughs> <laughs> I could sift through the badness of the film and appreciate it. <laughs> 
of the film. I'm saying okay, and it's not good enough. <laughs> um, what about the score to your bladder? Because it was pretty long. <laughs> yeah, so, so just after saying, you know what, I think we've kept Scott long enough. You're going to drag this out as long as you possibly can. I should score it with all of my organs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, that's, that's just how we do the podcast. Okay? I'm sorry if it's taking too long. I don't know how we knew that. My brain wants to give uh, it a, a, a good score because, you know, when, you know, I was expecting, I was expecting a real clangor, you know, like if that mm-hmm. kid, whatever that you suggested, I was like, yeah, really, do I have to? And I was expecting <laughs> not much better than, than what I, you know, had imagined that would be like. So I was actually kind of pleasantly surprised and I, and I managed to sit through it one and three quarter times. So... <laughs> With my, head, I'm going to give it a six out of ten, so it's just beyond the halfway, right. the par. Oh, nice. That's that's a positive review. Yeah, and that's if fresh. you were a film critic, that would have brought it out of the zero percent. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm a friend of the film. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Scott. Thank you so much for your time and yeah, for thank you so much, man. My pleasure. That was awesome. We really, really appreciate you taking time out of your out of your life to do do a silly podcast like this with us we, we loved it thank you talking to you yeah uh, okay so what do you guys really think of the living end <laughs> i hate him <laughs> oh no I, I didn't want to say i'm jack nicholson <laughs> and i black jack nicholson my daddy said that the living end are the best band ever tell if, if i was rating if i was rating uh guests on the podcast i'd give him a 10 that was lovely yeah, really. We'll make sure to, to pass on to Citizen K that the uh, yeah the, the offer's open for the Rockabilly yeah, exactly. collab. Mm. I hope that we can make that happen. <laughs> I would love to be able to say that I made that happen. <laughs> like, like, hey, son, did I ever tell you about the time I hooked Citizen K up with the living end? <laughs> <laughs> I also really like that Scott Owen... <laughs> Hated Limbiscuit. <laughs> yeah, and loved John Travolta. Yeah, straight off the bat, yeah. he's just straight out of the day. stuff to John Travolta. Uh, um, we should probably do our ratings and then just wrap up the actual episode. I'll cut out this part. Okay, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, th- this film was totally unwatchable. There was no point <laughs> where a hook got in me. Uh, as far as I can tell, it's we didn't even. We didn't finish talking about what happened in the movie because it was just such <laughs> nonsense. Just yeah. six six dudes looking for their dad because they're all half brothers with each other. They find the dad. The dad turns out to be not a good dude. So then they disown him and that's the end of the movie. And everybody goes and does their own thing. Really inconsequential what happened there other than they confronted their father and realized he's not that great. It was very Wagons East. Yeah, it yeah. was very Wagons East. And comedy, it's it was, hard yeah. to watch these comedy movies. It's easier when they're dramas, I think, because uh, there's a bit more um, earnestness and sincerity and more to laugh at, really. Yeah. Um, I'm giving this a two. A two. Oh. All right. This one for me was uh, definitely too long. Um, it started off really bad, I think. I think I think that's a bad way to open is like have your first 20 minutes be just terrible jokes. Like yeah. basically racism, donkey diarrheas, just like bad sex jokes. And there were times it went on where I was like, oh, this is kind of funny or I kind of enjoy this. And then it would have another like long scene. That baseball one really got me. And the other thing about it was they kept not calling it baseball. 
They kept calling it Sticky McChickens. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, <laughs> it tickled me now. That's the first time I'm hearing it, and I found it funny. It's, it's only funny because yeah. we're disappointed in the writing. I, I think that, that that was one of those times where I'm like, this isn't just... It's not funny, but it also... It could be quite funny. Like, the idea that someone's like, you ever notice the... Ba-? Like, it, it's more like a stand-up bit. You ever notice how baseball just feels like the rules are made up? Oh, you can... Oh, uh, uh, yeah, you get the ball past me twice and I'm out. I did that. Oh, no, I said three times. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, you can steal bases yeah. now. I mean, it's disconnected from the whole movie, so you yeah. can take that scene out and... I mean, you don't need it, but it seems like it was just written independently yeah, of Yeah, it's a bad... It's a bad SNL sketch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Old SNL sketches from that from back in that era. I don't know if they're still this way because I'd rather cut myself than watch SNL. But um, it's they were always too long. Yeah, I think that's because they were trying to they're trying to fill like an hour and a half of network TV time every week. I think that's absolutely what that was. That was just a forgotten old sketch that Adam Sandler had from the SNL. Tim Hale. Well, how do you say his name? Herhely. Herhely. They used to be a. The uh, 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 a bit about uh, the Hurley man that Adam Sandler would do on SNL. I know this because I had an Adam Sandler best of SNL oh, DVD, yep. uh, and I so I think he's been his writing partner since SNL. Yeah. Which is crazy. Like, imagine riding with the same person for, like, literally 35 years or whatever. Yeah. You're clocking into work, and you're just doing, like, your 20th movie together. You, it's going to get stale. Yeah, it's going to get stale for sure. Yes. Um, but yeah, this movie, I liked some of the like explosive violence for no reason every mm. now and then. And then other times I'm like, that's just weird. I I liked Jorge Garcia, Hurley from Lost. Just oh. not like. I like that he was there, but I didn't yeah, like what he was doing. Me too. It's like, would you take that role where you're one of the six, right? You're, you're, you're top build with Adam Sandler and other big stars. But you don't get a single line of dialogue. Your whole thing is just yeah. be like him da ba da gooba dooba. Yeah, it's like why didn't why didn't Rob Schneider, who's not Mexican, play the mute and no the Mexican way. guy play? Oh. Wow. <laughs> Rob Schneider loves playing some sort of ethnicity because because <laughs> he yeah it's in his contract. Yeah, he lo- he'll love just being Spanish. He'll love being. Italian. He's kind of like Polynesian. Eric Andre. He can play any yeah. race. He can play any. He's biracial. Who yeah, knows? he's biracial, so he the can rules fill in. Are... Yeah, the rules are different. I suppose the yeah. rules do not apply. He can do whatever he wants. Did we get wants. a rating, Declan? Long story short, yeah, I'll give this movie three point four. Holy shit! I, I Last week you gave something like a three point eight or something. I think I gave it a three point five. The fanatic. Or- wow. That was uh, better though. I think I even gave it 3.9. I enjoyed the fanatic more than I way enjoyed more. this. Yeah. yeah. You could follow yeah. the fanatic. Hey, and you did miss a Norm McDonald blink and you miss it cameo though. I did. Yeah. I missed it too. It's literally just well, like that someone opens a door in the whorehouse maybe yeah, and, he's got and he just two says, hookers. Yeah, he's got two hookers. He's, uh, do you know okay. so so it's not funny. He doesn't Oh, that do was no. him. No. no. It was okay. okay. Well, do you know why that was in there? Um I, I think because it's because, because they thought needs it was money. funny. Well, he has a, a, a Western, an, an obscure Western actor impression that he always wanted to use. Oh, yeah. And Adam Sandler knew that. <laughs> so he got him to do a five second joke. And he probably paid him, like, I don't know, 50 grand. This is just, it's, it's an elaborate That's scheme awesome. to just pay his friends. Yeah, yeah. Adam, what score did yeah. I give this? 3.4. You gave it 3.4. Hayden, do you want to. Yeah, look, I'll just say I, my, my little tidbit is. Um, 
in in the intro to the film, one of one of the I think one of the guys in the uh, Left Eye Club or whatever, mm. <laughs> the Bandits, um, is Nick Swardson. Yeah, right? yeah. And so I don't know Nick Swardson uh, from anything, but I the entire time I was watching it, I was like, oh, it's the guy from the Crocodile Dundee movie. Yeah, he's now been in two films from um. Oh, th- with zero percent, yeah. and then I was I was upset to find out that it's no, it's not that guy. It's the guy who looks like yeah. him, Nick Swartzen, who I know nothing about. Funny you should say that because I don't know if we said it when we yeah would, we did we did we talked yeah. about it about how he looks like Nick. Yeah. Swart- he's like a positive Nick Swartzen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is the one where you can see Nick Swartzen's not doing that well. Yeah, he's he's pretty bloated and and yeah, not really all there. Oh, poor guy. <laughs> um, uh, I I give it a. Two. Uh, there's no way. I. I. I mean, like, I, I've had a lot on my plate at the moment, so I do apologize for not seeing the whole movie all the way through. But yeah, I. I can't imagine that it would ever elevate above a two for me. It was not. Uh, yeah, it, I couldn't believe how long it was going to be. Anyway, that's I want to point out one more joke that we didn't point out, which is that the guys who have all said they're part of the left eye gang and we all cut out our right eye, at the end, they reveal that none of them have cut out their right eye, except for the one dude that joined them who was already missing one eye and he cut out his other yeah. eye. There's a long scene, Hayden, where they're convincing that guy, if you want to join the gang... I saw, I saw okay, that yeah. scene. I saw so that they scene. make him cut his eye out. And, and let's, 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 not, let's, not, let's not talk about it so the people listening get to get in on the joke, okay? <laughs> I saw it. That's, that's all that matters. Now, shh. All right. Um, Mitchie, do you want to take us home? I, uh, I will quickly talk about one scene that we didn't talk about, which is Steve Buscemi's scene, which is I at least found the joke The premise funny. was funny. The yeah. premise was funny. Hold on, is the last time Steve Buscemi and Harvey Cattell in a movie together, was it Reservoir Dogs? That's the last, uh, that's the last one, and don't question it. And, and, And doesn't that movie also end with Steve Buscemi holding Harvey Cattell's severed head? No, yeah. it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, it so could, he, he's got this ointment, which he, I guess, uses on... Uh, Jorge Garcia's uh, uh, balls. Yeah. And then he then goes over and 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 uses it on the donkey's asshole. Yeah, yeah. And then... He tells the donkey, he says, lift up your tail, please. And then he starts using that. And then he uses it as like... Shaving cream. Shaving cream. And then he puts it in Taylor Lautner's mouth. Yeah, for infections. And then he, he offers Sandler some lip balm to use it as lip balm. And then he just kind of uses it himself because Sandler's like, eh, not, not for me. And I think that scene encapsulates this movie yeah. where I'm, I'm fully with it, except I, there's something about Adam Sandler in this movie where it seems like his spirit, he just doesn't seem like he's there. Yeah, it's a very boring lead character because it has it. Has, he's like the quiet talking, like okay, I'll do that. No emotion. Also, Hayden, you find out at the end that Danny Trejo killed Adam Sandler's mum, and so Danny Trejo's like, "What are you gonna do? Stab me with one of your two knives?" And then Adam Sandler's like, "No." Danny Trejo raises his gun, shoots it. It goes slow motion. Adam Sandler throws a knife, a third knife. I think he says, "I had a third secret knife just for you." Throws the third knife through the bullet. It cuts the bullet in half nice. and hits Danny Trejo in the head. Very nice. And it, yeah, and that cool. is the kind of. Can I upgrade my score to a twenty? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, you can. Good. But yeah, done. that just kind of encapsulates like you can't be too cool 
in your comedy movie, man. You've got to have a little bit of a... I don't know. It, it, it was unrelatable. But, you know, I mean, the donkey diarrhea jokes. Those, it they, seems they like Adam Sandler <laughs> specifically was like, I'll be in this movie and I'll write it and I'll star in it. But I'm not going to be funny in this yeah, movie. Just Everyone else can be funny. I just understand I'm deeply depressed. <laughs> yeah. I, you got to give me the money. But yeah. I'm not making facial... I'll take I'm, look, your money, but I'll I'm tell not you, making There's two things funny. I'm not doing. I'm not making facial expressions, and I'm not raising my voice. That's, <laughs> I'm not going... <laughs> he did at one point. He did at one point because they were in the saloon, and it was old Smiley's saloon, and they had to pretend to be a ghost for some reason. And he was like, Ooh, Smiley, it's me, the ghost of the saloon. Yeah. But he, he wouldn't be on screen doing there that. There was one other thing I wanted to talk about, which is that they have a campfire jamboree song where they where all they sing like, a love song I can't wait till I meet my dad. Their dad, yeah. yeah. And that was like a Tim and Eric song. Yeah. Yeah. It was weird, and some of them really couldn't sing. Terry Crews cannot even keep, like, the melody. And maybe he wasn't listening to the tune. Like, maybe they just had to sing it to a metronome or something. But, yeah, he comes in, and they're all playing fake instruments. And, and then Adam Sandler sings in that voice he does when he's singing seriously, which is like his wedding singer voice and, you know, his stand-up. He does all those songs. And, yeah, it just seemed weird to me. But um, It was weird because I quite like Adam Sandler's sincere singing voice. He's, yeah. He's got a sweet vulnerability yeah. to him. Yeah, it was just, it was it was a trip because it just the tone issues. But it, I think because of the tone issues, it did catch me laughing a few times. So originally I was going to give it like a 1.5 because of how fucking racist and just just shitty it was. I'm like, this this is bad. But then... I don't know. I did genuinely laugh a few times, so I'm going to upgrade it to like a uh, 2.4. 2.4 on the board. Truly Rotten Potatoes. Who knows what we're watching next? Who knows who will be the next guest? We'll see you next time. Truly Rotten Potatoes. Chopping it up. Mashing it up. Bye. See you later, everybody. Come on. My Put daddy said it's the end uh, of the podcast, so you better listen to him, Jack.